Gresham College Presents Charles Dickens Hard Times and Hyperbole by Professor Belinda Jack. Well, good evening and welcome, and thank you very much for coming. So, this is the second of six lectures that I'm giving this academic year, um, and my overall title is Rhetoric and the Life of Literature. Now, as I said in my last lecture, rhetoric has a bad name. Um, and it could be said that in the wake of the um, American shenanigans, um, rhetoric has an even worse name. Um, but phrases like empty rhetoric, it's just rhetoric, and so on, suggest that the main purpose of rhetoric is to deceive. Now, this, of course, <coughs> can be true. But rhetoric is also an ancient discipline that tries to make sense of how we use language to persuade. How do we make language persuasive? Now, we could argue that all human communication is, to some extent, um, intended to persuade, um, even a very simple rhetorical question like, isn't it a lovely day, could be said to have a persuasive element, because if you hadn't noticed what the day was like, having heard that, you might say, yes, you're right, I'm persuaded, it is a lovely day. So, this year, I want to explore the nuts and bolts of rhetoric in relation to a number of famous works of literature. And what I hope to show is that knowing something about rhetoric, knowing something about this discipline which sets out to understand how things mean in persuasive ways. So I want to show that knowing these terms, knowing something about rhetoric, helps us see how literature works, how literature works its magic, how it seduces us. But at the same time, I want to argue that great works of literature take us beyond rhetoric. In other words, we have all manner of rhetorical terms, but what I want to demonstrate is that in the hands of great writers, they do more than what the rhetorical term means, more than its, its simple definition. And so in my last lecture, which was the first of this series, we looked at Jane Austen's novel entitled Persuasion of 1817-1818, and, of course, the title, Persuasion, is what rhetoric is all about. And we looked at this particular novel in relation to irony and narrative technique. In other words, how the story is told. And I concluded that these two features of Austen's last completed novel functioned to introduce all manner of ambiguities, leaving the reader in a in a position of uncertainty as to quite how to understand the novel and its message, and therefore in a position where we have as readers to make certain choices about what we feel the novel is really getting at. Irony, the rhetorical trope, rather than being a, a stable feature of rhetoric that you can simply define and apply, turned out to be a subtly shifting trope. Irony can mean communicating the opposite of what is said, in which case we know where we are. But in persuasion, the ironies teeter between meaning what they say and meaning the complete opposite, and it's down to the reader to decide which. Now, tonight I want to proceed in a similar way, considering another feature of rhetoric, and one which at first sight we might see as very much more straightforward, and that is hyperbole. Well, here's a fairly standard <coughs> um, dictionary definition. It's a noun. Exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. And I want to explore uh, this trope in relation to one of hyperbole's greatest admirers and practitioners, Charles Dickens. Now, I think we all know, um, you don't need to have read much Dickens to know that hyperbole is very much key to his style. Um, to the point where his critics um, usually cite hyperbole as one of his great weaknesses. Um, hyperbole in Dickens' writing has myriad effects, from making a character's disposition unmissable to adding quirkiness and comedy. Com uh, hyperbole, of course, is closely associated to the idea of caricature, um, which is another feature of rhetoric, um, but it can also, um, I'm sorry, there's a typo in description there, um, be um, relevant to language. 
then hyperbole is also closely connected to another rhetorical term, which is apronym. Um, An apronym is the rhetorical term for a character's name reflecting his or her her personality or or dominant traits. And again, this is something that um, Dickens very much delighted in. So Mr. Murdstone in David Copperfield conjures up the twin allusions to murder on the one hand and stony coldness on the other. Mr. Gradgrind, um, whom we'll be talking about this evening in hard times, is intent on his pupils graduating, and this is by way of nothing but grind. Now, often the names of Dickens' characters are synonymous with their unique traits, um, perhaps most obviously Scrooge um, and his inhumanity and meanness. Um, When it comes to visual representations, and, and these can be stills like this, Um, or film or TV versions of Dickens, we lose the language. And this is a wonderful image of Scrooge. Um, It is exaggerated, um, particularly the kind of sense in which his hair is almost like icicles, which is associated with his coldness, and his his nose is, again, um, like like an icicle. His eyebrows are sort of frosty. Um, But it doesn't come anything close to this, This is the hyperbolic description of Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it in one degree at Christmas. Now, so, so far we've had all this alliteration. This is a sound patterning. We've got dog, days, didn't, and degree there. Um, the, the repeated D sound, <clears throat> all adding emphasis, and emphasis in some sense being what hyperbole is about. And he goes on, no warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. Again, that very conspicuous alliteration. No wind that blew was bitterer than he, Not falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain, less open to entreaty. Um, Now that, for my money, goes a lot further than this, um, um, which is why I would advocate reading Dickens um, and not feeling that if you've seen any films or TV versions, uh, you know Dickens, because my love of Dickens, anyway, is very much in this extraordinary language. Now... Um, Another trick that Dickens plays is a kind of whimsical, what I call inverted personification. And again, I think hyperbole plays an important part. Now, personification as a rhetorical device is describing an inanimate object as an animate one. And Dickens often does the opposite and refers to people as inanimate objects. So, for example, the British aristocracy... Um, a member of is the Noble Refrigerator, capital N, capital R. And he refers to orphans as stocks and shares, school children as nameless and numberless vessels into which the facts will be poured, as we'll see in a moment. People he refers to in another novel as tugboats, dinner party guests as furniture. Now, Given that Dickens had very strong views about the society in which he was living and the need for all manner of social reforms, why did he rely so heavily on hyperbole, which at first sight would seem like a rather frivolous and trivial way of using language? Well, its rhetorical significance, the the trope of hyperbole, has actually been debated since ancient times. And it was often dismissed as obvious, offensive, and simplistic, and offering few or no theoretical or philosophical insights. And I hope what I mean by that will emerge later. Um, But basically, it's not a a trope that gets us very far with our thinking. It's a very simple, trivial exaggeration. Now, the ancient philosopher Quintilian uses this graphic example um, as an example of how how unsophisticated hyperbole is as a rhetorical trope. And he says, as he vomited, 
he filled his lap and the whole platform with gobbets of food. Well, it's unlikely that he filled the entire platform having vomited. Um, It's clearly hyperbole, and he uses this example to show just how crude it is. Hyperbole, and I think in this example, comes very close to sensationalism, Um, and it's what we see in the tabloid papers every day. You know, man eats monster burger. Well, you know, was the burger really as big as a monster? Well, I suppose it depends how you define your monster. Um, Now, in ancient times, hyperbole was also often accused of cacozelia, or perverse affectation. Um, In other words, a kind of exaggeration that's elaborate, but actually rather vacuous. Um, And Aristotle referred to it as the the worst fault of all eloquence. Um, Aristotle also considered hyperbole to be adolescent. Well, when my sons were at that stage of life, I was well aware of this, and if there are any teachers of sixth formers here, or or indeed teachers, um, this may ring true. Um, Any teacher for whom my sons had um, even a modicum of respect was always known as a legend, And contrary-wise, any teacher with whom they didn't get along very well was evil. So I think there is something about adolescence and hyperbole. So what does Dickens do with hyperbole? Well, in the vast majority of his writings, I think it serves primarily as a satirical and comic device, um, closely related to parody and caricature. But does it do more than that in hard times? Hard Times was published in the middle of the 19th century in 1854, and it's Dickens' only novel-length expose of the industrial working class. And it's his most vociferous indictment of the iniquities of class. He uses sarcasm, bitterness, and satire to demonstrate, for example, how these marginalised workers were called hands by the factory owners, not people, just hands, dismembered body parts, vulnerable appendages of the machines they work. Just hands, not minds or souls. Well, for those of you who don't know the novel, let me briefly try to summarise it. Um, It was published in serial form, um, which is an important thing to remember and something that's very easy to forget when we read so many 19th century novels that they were actually published in serial form Um, on a weekly basis, and when we read a single tome um, as a paperback, uh, we tend to forget that there may be something structural about the novel that's very much bound up with the fact that it was published in serial form. It cost tuppence, um, which was cheap, and it was clearly aimed at a a lower middle-class and middle-class audience at a time when literacy rates were still relatively low, although, of course, people did read aloud... And Dickens often in his fiction um, provides glimpses of the austere life of the working classes um, to draw this to the attention of his middle-class audience. Now, the novel's made up of three books. um, And as I try to summarise these, um, we'll come across myriad examples of hyperbole. Each of the three books has a title which refers to the Epistle to the Galatians, the biblical epistle, um, chapter 6, verse 7. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So in your life you get what you deserve. The first book is entitled Sowing, the second Reaping, and the third Garnering, or Gathering In. Now, the the novel opens at Superintendent Mr. Gradgrind's school in the fictitious Coketown, another example of the rhetorical trope acronym, Coketown, because it's nothing but coal and smoke. And this is a northern industrial town which some critics think was based on Preston, but it doesn't really matter. And Gradgrind is described, and I quote, as a man of realities, facts, and calculations. He insists that all he wants from the pupils is facts. And we'll look at the passage in detail in a moment, but for now, the story. In the second chapter, one of the pupils, Sissy, who has a father who works with horses in the circus, is asked by Gradgrind to define what a horse is. And although she's known horses at close hand all her life, and she's worked with them and she's loved them, 
She can't come up with a definition. She doesn't really understand the question to define a horse. And Gradgrind then asks another pupil, Bitzer, who replies, quadruped, graminivorous, which means he eats grains, 40 teeth, namely 24 grinders, 4 eye teeth, and 12 incisive incisors. Sheds coat in the spring. In marshy countries, sheds hoofs too. Hoofs hard, but requiring to be shod with iron. Age known by marks in mouth. Um, and that's the end of Bitzer speaking, but Dickens tells us thus and much more Bitzer. Now, the rhetorical technique here is known as asininden, the omission of conjunctions between a series. And in the next chapter, entitled A Loophole, and rhetorically this turns out to be both metaphorical and literal, Louisa and Thomas, two of Mr. Gradgrind's children, decide to go past the travelling circus run by Mr. Sleary, close to the name Sleazy, another acronym, and to look through a hole um, in the canvas big top because they want to see something that isn't just factual. And they're spotted by their father. In the name of wonder, idleness and folly, said Mr. Gradgrind, leading each away by a hand. What do you do here? Now, the enumeration, wonder, idleness, and folly, conflates these three really very different abstract nouns. He castigates them for their frivolousness, and they return home. In the fourth chapter, entitled Mr. Bounderby, alluding to the idea of the bounder rhetorically, um, he's introduced as a man perfectly devoid of sentiment, Well, there's an oxymoron there, perfectly devoid of sentiment, surely imperfectly devoid of sentiment. How can you be perfectly devoid of something we all recognise as a very important human sentiment or aspect of our our beings? And he turns out to be Gradgrind's close friend. They're very much a pair. Bounderby's a wealthy mill owner who claims, speciously, um, that he has come from an immensely impoverished background and has, is, is, is a self-made man. And the two men discuss Louisa and Thomas and their wrongdoings. They're going to look through a hole in the canvas of the big top and decide that it's Sissy, who's just arrived at the school, the one who didn't know how to define a horse, who is obviously lowering the tone in the classroom. And so they decide she must be ex- expelled from the school And, I mean, this is a very extreme reaction. Um, And again, I think it relates to this idea of hyperbole, that there are exaggerated choices that characters have to make. Because what they say is, either you must leave the circus and your father forever, um, and come and work for Mrs. Gradgrind, or you must leave the school and forget all idea of an education. Anyway, she decides that she wants to continue her education and work for Mrs. Gradgrind, leaving the circus life forever, but hoping that one day she will find her father. Now, the stark choice that Sissy has to make underscores the opposition between the life of the circus, which is why we had circus music when you came in, incidentally, and the life of Coketown. These are two different worlds which are going to be increasingly important. And bound up with a notion of hyperbole that I want to explore later, these two worlds, the circus and Coketown. Now, a parallel story, and the novel is, as I say, episodic in a sense, because it was published in serial form, and of course you had to end each episode with something of a cliffhanger to get people to buy the publication the next week. So you get this kind of strange uh, plot Um, or strange to those of us who read contemporary novels where there isn't this kind of episodic episodic sense. So a parallel story concerns Stephen Blackpool, who's a mill worker, a man of perfect integrity, we're told. He's known as Old Stephen because his life has been so tough that he looks older than his 40 years. He's introduced at the end of his working day when he meets Rachel, who's a close friend. His wife's an alcoholic who's left him. But on arrival home that day, he discovers to his horror that she has returned. And this is more than he can contemplate. And he asks Bounderby how he can end his marriage. Mr. Bounderby has a paid companion, Mrs. Parsett, and the two of them discuss Stephen's inquiry. I think Bounderby, there's something kind of about him being a bounder and, and the, the roundness of him that really works. 
Um, now, Mrs. Sparsit strongly disapproves of the idea of bringing a marriage to an end, so influenced by her, bound to be informed Stephen that the legal process would be both complicated and extremely expensive. And, of course, here Dickens is saying there's one law for the rich and one law for the poor. And a further narrative strand is then woven in. Leaving Bounderby's house, Stephen meets an elderly woman who informs him that she visits Coketown annually. And it isn't until the end of the novel that her role fully emerges. The next main focus is on Louisa's putative marriage to Bounderby. Now, again, the, the age difference between these two is exaggerated. Um, this is Mr. Gradgrind trying to persuade her that 30 years difference in age really doesn't matter at all. Um, and again, Dickens makes it 30 years rather than 20 or 10. Anyway, they marry and they set off for a kind of working honeymoon. Bounderby wants to research the fact, factory practices in Lyon. Um, this is a rather exaggeratedly unromantic honeymoon. So by the end of the first book, a number of parallel stories have unfolded. And the second book opens in Bounderby's new Coketown Bank, which brings various characters together, both Mrs. Sparsett and Sissy. Sissy's former classmate, Bitzer, oversee the bank at night. A friend of Gradgrind, James Harthouse, who's failed to find a satisfactory profession in London, arrives with a letter of recommendation from Gradgrind. Harthouse finds Bounderby a perfect bore, but falls for the now world-weary Louisa, who's discovered that being married to someone 30 years older than her isn't such fun. Her brother, Thomas or Tom, is also in Bounderby's employ, but behaves irresponsibly and disrespectfully. Harthouse becomes aware of Tom's con contempt for Bounderby. It emerges that Tom encouraged Louisa to marry Bounderby to make his own life easier. Tom has his own serious money problems. Meanwhile, Slackridge, a union activist, accuses Stephen Blackpool of treachery at a union meeting. Blackpool has refused to join the union and is sent to Coventry by his co-workers. Bounderby gets wind of this and summons him and decides that he's an agitator. Louisa helps him out financially and Tom arranges for him to wait outside the bank after work. Tom's motive is to set him up, to set Stephen up. When the bank is burgled, Stephen is fingered for the crime. Louisa is also implicated because she's suspected by Mrs. Sparsett of having an affair with him. But it's Harthouse who's in love with Louisa, and when he declares his love, he's rebuffed. Louisa leaves for the station, surreptitiously followed by Mrs. Sparsett, and leaves by train for her father's. Mrs. Sparsett loses her, and when she arrives at her father's, she's near collapse and faints in front of him. And here we have yet another very melodramatic scene, melodrama again being closely related to the idea of hyperbole and exaggeration. Now, in the third book, briefly, Mrs. Sparsip, the snoop, visits Bounderby in his London hotel to brief him with her news, and the two of them return to Coketown and to Stone Lodge, where Louisa is convalescing from her breakdown. Bounderby is apprised by Gradgrind of Louisa's refusal of Harthouse's attentions, and that she's had a nervous collapse and needs time to find her feet. Bounderby is horrified and immensely indignant and bad-mannered, particularly in his exchanges with Mrs. Sparsett for misleading him. And Bounderby delivers an ultimatum. Either Louisa returns home the next day to her husband, or he will start divorce proceedings. Again, we have this melodramatic moment, and again it's a woman, just as Sissy was presented with this exaggerated choice between the circus and education. So Louisa um, is being given another very melodramatic choice. Sissy then advises Harthouse to leave Coketown forever. Stephen Blackpool has moved away to look for employment elsewhere, and Rachel knows where he is. She tells Bounderby that she'll contact him, suggesting that he return to clear his name. She also explains that Louisa and Tom visited Stephen on the night that he was dismissed and Bounderby is suspicious and brings her to Gradgrind's house where Louisa confirms Rachel's story. A further, perhaps not altogether convincing narrative re-emerges at this point. With Rachel's help, Mrs. Sparsett has tracked down the mysterious woman, a Mrs. Pegler, who visits Coketown on an annual basis for reasons that have hitherto remained mysterious. She turns out to be Bounderby's mother. Bounderby's story of extreme poverty and abandonment 
by his mother turns out to be wholly invented. He is the dishonourable man, the bounder. On the contrary, his mother gave him a good childhood, and it was Bounderby, when wealthy and established, who insisted that she never visit him. Bounderby falls from grace and is regarded as a preposterous humbug. Another aspect of the novel's denouement concerns Stephen. Again, rather improbably, he's fallen down a disused pit on his way back to Coketown. Rachel and Sissy come across him on a Sunday walk. The local villagers rescue him. He manages to reiterate his innocence, but then dies. Stephen emerges as a martyr, a Christ figure who gives up his life. This, too, is exaggerated, rhetorically speaking, hyperbolic. The accusing figure now points towards Tom. Louisa and Sissy are convinced that he's responsible for the bank heist. Stephen was encouraged by Tom to loiter outside the bank the night of the robbery in order to be implicated in the crime. Sissy had helped Tom escape, arranging for him to be employed in Mr. Sleary's circus. Louisa and Sissy find Tom at the circus. With Gradgrind's and Sleary's help, they conspire to get Tom to Liverpool, whence he can escape overseas. Bitzer, however, appears and does his best to scupper things. His motive is to carry favour with Bounderby in the hope of promotion by bringing Tom to justice. Sleary manages to set up an ambush, and Tom succeeds in travelling to Liverpool, where he boards ship. Again, the twists and turns in the plot are melodramatic, improbable and exaggerated. Other ends are then tied up. Mrs. Sparsett is turned onto the streets by Bounderby for disgracing him. Five years later, he himself collapses and dies in the street. Gradgrind miraculously changes his ways and rejects the utilitarian basis of his educational method and is distanced by his MP friends. Tom dies abroad, having written a letter of penitence to Louisa. Louisa herself lives on a widow. Rachel continues with her life of hard work and decency, and Sissy continues her happy life, concerned to be benevolent with the underprivileged and bringing up loving children. She educates them to take the life of the imagination seriously and to appreciate beauty. Their education is in stark contrast to what she received in Gradgrind's school. Now, the summary I've provided is based on the conflation of a number of synopses. Um, and I think, in fact, that Wikipedia's uh, is one of the most comprehensive. Now, of course, I recommend that you read the novel. Um, but if you do want a fuller account, Wikipedia is a good place to start in this instance. So what was Dickens trying to do in this, his 10th novel? And why does hyperbole not just continue to play a big part in the way he writes, but actually, in my view, become even more important in this, which is, in some senses, his most serious book? Well, he certainly set out to satirise the utilitarians. Um, The utilitarians believed that it was the sum of good that really mattered, um, that what mattered was to maximise happiness and pleasure, and that this could all be computed And in a letter to his close friend, Charles Knight, he accused the utilitarians of, and I quote, seeing figures and averages and nothing else. Now, this is obviously very reminiscent of Gradgrind's philosophy. Dickens thought utilitarianism a selfish philosophy, and in conjunction with the unrestricted capitalist um, economics of the time, the educational system encouraged a deep, lack of respect between mill owners or factory owners and their workers. Um, And it was uh, facts that were emphasised and imagination um, was was neglected, deeply neglected. Now, we know that Dickens was appalled by the working conditions in industrial England at the time. He visited a large number of factories and had himself as a boy experienced the harshness of employment within Uh, an industrial setting. Um, He was basically sent to work when his father uh, lost all his money. And he felt deeply betrayed by his mother being sent off in the way he was. Uh, In a letter to his friend E.M. Fitzgerald, Dickens wrote that he aimed to, and I quote, strike the heaviest blow in my power, unquote, for those who worked in such terrible conditions. So to reiterate, why, given the seriousness um, of Dickens' concerns, why does hyperbole continue to play such an important part in the novel? Well, I'd like to suggest that it plays a rather different role from the role it plays in the earlier novels, where it's primarily comic. 
Um, in hard times, I think it plays a very earnest role. So I'd like to explore aspects of the novel um, in some detail now to see how Dickens reinvents or creates his own form of hyperbole by combining or confusing it with other features of rhetoric, with other rhetorical tropes. So here's the opening passage uh, of the novel. Now, what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. This is the principle on which I bring up my own children, and this is the principle on which I bring up these children. Stick to facts, sir. Now, some people may say that thinking about modern GCSEs, we've moved a long way from O-levels. Um, The scene was a plain, bare, monotonous fall to the schoolroom, and the speaker's square forefinger emphasised his observations by underscoring every sentence with a line on the schoolmaster's sleeve. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's square wall of a forehead, which had his eyebrows for its base, while his eyes found commodious cellarage in two dark caves, overshadowed by the wall. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's mouth, which was wide, thin, and hard-set. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's voice, which was inflexible, dry, and dictatorial. Of course, it's not his voice that's dictatorial, it's the man himself. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's hair, which bristled on the skirts of his bald head, a plantation of furs to keep the wind from its shining surface, all covered with knobs like the crust of a plum pie, as if the head had scarcely warehouse room for the hard facts stored inside. The speaker's obstinate carriage, square coat, square legs, square shoulders, nay, his very neckcloth, trained to take him by the throat with an unaccommodating grasp, like a stubborn fact, as it was, all helped the emphasis. In this life, we want nothing but facts. Sir, nothing but facts. The speaker and the schoolmaster and the third grown person present all backed a little and swept with their eyes the inclined plane of little vessels, then and there arranged in order, ready to have imperial gallons of facts poured into them until they were full to the brim. So what's going on in terms of Dickens' use of rhetoric here? Facts... um, at the end of the first sentence, is capitalised. And the stylistic use of capitalisation, um, not for a proper noun, adds emphasis, a form of hyperbole. It also suggests personification, which also adds emphasis. Facts is repeated at the end of the second sentence and the beginning of the third. This technique, using a word at the end of one sentence and the beginning of the next sentence is known rhetorically as anadiplosis, which is from the Greek meaning to be doubled back or to be made double. Figurative language, a feature of rhetorical language, is then employed. Plant nothing and root everything out. So this idea of planting and rooting things out, which ties in with the titles of the three books. Um, The idea of this figurative plant and root out again adds emphasis, um, particularly in in its suggested violence. And then the naturalistic imagery continues in the reference to thinking animals. Well, of course, they're not animals, they're children. Um, So here, education is suggested as a kind of natural order, um, not a a human uh, spiritual process. And there's plenty of enumeration, um, another feature of rhetoric, plain, bare, monotonous, and so on. We have geometrical imagery, which ties in with Gradgrind's obsession with facts and his alleged feelings about utilitarianism. Um, He has a square forefinger, we have a line, we have a square wall. Um, And this linked imagery again adds emphasis, and square will be repeated a further three times at the end of the paragraph. Indeed, the actual word emphasis occurs five times in the space of a few sentences, and is the last, and therefore the most emphatic word of the paragraph. 
He's also used at the start of successive sentences, and this rhetorical usage is known as anaphora. So we need to look at the first couple of paragraphs of the novel to see hyperbole at work in all manner of ways, from the most obvious and adolescent, perhaps, to the most complex, where it becomes integral to other rhetorical devices or it becomes confused with other rhetorical devices. And the absurdity of Mr. Gradgrind emerges with full comic effect when his hair is described. How many schoolchildren laugh at their teacher's hair? The comb-over, the undyed roots, the toupee. Dickens tells us that the speaker's hair, which bristled on the skirts of his bald head, I like this so much that I had to repeat it, I'm afraid, a plantation of firs to keep the wind from its shining surface, all covered with knobs like the crust of a plum pie. The exaggeration here is one of scale, um, with these incongruous juxtapositions between the man's head and a windswept landscape with firs, and then the small-scale crust of a plum pie, um, now, this, this playing with scale, again, seems to me to be related to the idea of hyperbole because you, you don't see the, the size of the scale and the size of exaggeration unless it's put alongside something like a plum pie. And facts at the beginning of Chapter 5 will become synonymous with the industrial town itself, where we read Coke Town, to which Mrs. Mrs., Mrs. Bounderby and Gradgrind now walked, was a triumph of fact. It had no great taint of fancy in it than Mrs. Gradgrind herself. Here the hyperbole of likening a fact to an entire city is compounded by an irony. Mrs. Gradgrind is repeatedly shown to be singularly lacking in fancy. In fact, Gradgrind has married her in the full knowledge that she'll be incapable of interfering with his fact-obsessed educational methods. So hyperbole conspires with all manner of stylistic features, as we've seen. Aptronym, capitalization, personification, anadiplosis, figurative language, rhetoric, uh, sorry, uh, repetition, and anaphora. Well, I mentioned that in the classical world, hyperbole was seen as a very infantile, adolescent rhetorical figure. But there were some writers who had more interesting ideas about what hyperbole might be able to do. And certain definitions and conceptions indicate that it might serve as a epistemological force, epistemology being that branch of philosophy which investigates the nature, origin, and limits of human knowledge. In other words, that hyperbole might actually be a way of discovering something new, Cicero, in De Oratore, despite his emphasis on control, defines hyperbole, which he refers to using the Latin word superlatio, as, and I quote, exaggeration and overstatement of the truth for the sake of amplification or diminution. In Rhetorica ad Herenium, rhetoric for Herennius, thought to be by Cicero, but no one's absolutely sure, he states that, quote, emphasis is produced through hyperbole when more is said than the truth warrants. And Quintilian suggests that hyperbole is, and I quote, an appropriate or elegant exaggeration of the truth. Now, by the time we reach the Renaissance, this idea of hyperbole, so you almost have sort of two parallel traditions of understanding of what hyperbole does, um, Erasmus, who wrote um, a textbook of rhetoric called Copia, he emphasised the playful exaggeration of the truth delivered by hyperbole. Um, he liked its kind of ludic quality, um, which you know, I think we see very clearly in Dickens. Um, Renaissance writers also often underlined hyperbole's imaginative force, um, and this is what I want to build on, this idea that certain kinds of exaggeration can actually bring new ideas, new ways of understanding things. Um, Ritter, who is a philosopher, um, has written a very interesting kind of philosophical discussion of hyperbole um, entitled Recovering Hyperbole, Rethinking the Limits of Rhetoric for an Age of Excess. It's rather a good title. Um, says that the point is to exploit hyperbole in order to try to communicate what he calls 
the extraordinary beyond of thought and language, to make the transcendent imminent and to express the ineffable. So here, hyperbole is seen as a potentially creative way of using language, a way that might suddenly allow new insights um, to emerge. And later theorists um, have claimed that hyperbole can offer possibilities for exploration with meaning at the extreme boundaries of thought. Ritter describes Stanivukovic's argument that hyperbole can be, and I quote, an incredible exaggerated utterance that interrupts the language and logic of the existing argument by shifting one level of meaning to another reinvented meaning. The French theorist Gérard Jeannette has also explored the complexities and ambiguities of hyperbole in his essay Hyperbole, which just means hyperboles, and Ritter quotes from him, does not this hyperbolic mode of thought have its reasons, which common sense ignores and which reason wishes to know? For these writers, hyperbole is not the weak, obvious adolescent trope. It's a very complex way of using language, which offers epistemological insights. It offers new insights. It interrupts conventional logic and takes us beyond to something new. Bakhtin, um, uh, another theorist, suggests when discussing the carnival grotesque, by its transgression of convention, hyperbolizes, and it, this becomes an act of becoming. Well, Earlier, I talked about the ancient writers who saw hyperbole as somehow linked to pretension. Um, and it could be that some of these ideas seem rather pretentious. But I think some of these newer ideas of hyperbole really emerge from Dickens' hard times. The hyperbole associated with facts and figures goes beyond the straightforwardly comic and trivial it serves to point to the ideological defects of utilitarianism and similar ideologies and points to new and exciting ideological possibilities if we can get beyond facts and figures. And in addition, hyperbole in hard times, as I mentioned earlier, is also associated with this important binary opposition between fact and fiction or fact and fancy. Key to the novel is the contrast between the world of industry, associated with fact and Coketown, and the world of the circus, which is associated with fancy. Dickens, not altogether incidentally, loved the circus. Astley's circus was one of the most famous and innovative circuses in the world around this time. It was founded by Philip Astley, who was an expert horseman, equestrian, and he, it was his circus that was um, the first to arrange things so that the audience was actually in a circle around the ring, which creates a much more sort of intimate and exciting relationship um, between audience and performers. Um, Dickens visited this incarnation of Atlee's circus several times during the 1830s, and he wrote about it in his Sketches by Boz of 1836. And there, there it is again. So what's the significance of the circus in the novel, and what does it have to do with hyperbole? Well, Sleary, the circus owner in the novel, claims people must be amused. They, he, slur, he slurs his speech because he drinks quite heavily. They can't be all with a working nor yet can they always be a learning. But I think that the circus in hard times is much more than a source of amusement. I think it's quasi-metonymic. Now, metonymy in rhetoric is the substitution of the name of an attribute or adjunct for that of the thing meant. Um, the most famous example is the pen is mightier than the sword, when the pen stands for the written word um, and the sword for military might. So you take an aspect of something associated with writing the pen and something associated with violent force, the sword, and, um, and they stand for these bigger concepts. And so what I want to argue is the circus is a manifestation of hyperbole in its exaggerations of scale and proportion, that this rhetorical trope, hyperbole, 
is actually made manifest, is tangible in actually what a circus is. Um, it's about extremes. It's about performances that go beyond um, the first idea you might have for this act, which would be to throw a couple of knives at a woman. Well, here we have, I haven't counted them, but a very large number um, of knives. It's exaggerated. Um, and here we have a woman capable of balancing on one hand. But no, it's not just a woman capable of balancing on one hand, but on top of another woman, that all these acts are exaggerated. Sleary's Circus is the first alternative world in the novel um, to stand in contrast to the orderly, produ productive world that Bounderby and Gradgrind, Gradgrind, at least at the start of the novel, stand for. The circus is described as untidy and chaotic. No patterns ever seem to merge. There's nothing geometric. There's nothing that, that you can kind of get a proper handle on. The acts are described as not really having a beginning or an end, even though, of course, they must have. Nothing fits into a kind of quantifiable world, the kind of world that Gradgrind approves, at least at the beginning of the novel. How do you calculate the worth of a worker whose contribution is, and this is how Dickens describes it, to dance upon rolling caskets, stand upon bottles, catch knives and balls, twirl hand basins, ride upon anything, jump over everything, and stick at nothing? Well, this seems to me to be hyperbole about hyperbole. The circus is a place of exaggeration of the unbelievable, of something that goes beyond what we would normally accept as the truth. Um, but typically, Dickens describes it in hyperbolic fashion. It's not just walking on rolling cas caskets, it's dancing on rolling caskets, standing upon bottles. Well, standing upon certain sorts of things, but bottles? Catching knives and balls, not just catching balls or knives, but knives and balls. Twirl hand basins, that sounds like a very odd act. Ride upon anything, not just horses, but anything. Jump over everything, well, how can you possibly jump over everything and stick at nothing? Um, it, it's, it's a wonderful language to describe the magic um, of the circus. Now, the symbolism of the circus, and there's a serious side to this, because the circus promotes a kind of communal living. It, it, it promotes apprenticeship. You can't learn to do any of the jobs in the circus without being apprenticed, unlike being in a factory where you just sit down with your machine and do what you do. Um, and most importantly, it blurs the boundaries between fact and fiction, between what's real and what's imaginary. And it's also associated the novel with the symbolism of Pegasus, the flying horse of Greek mythology and a symbol of wonder and fantasy. Um, and in the novel, the inn where the circus people stay um, is the Pegasus Arms, and it has a Pegasus on its signboard, and there's a, there's a portrait of a Pegasus inside, um, which describes, is described as having real gauze let in for his wings, golden stars stuck on all over him, and his ethereal harness made of red silk. The circus horses and their fearless riders create a sense of wonder in the audience and give them a brief escape from the grind of Coketown. The horses emerge as a direct opposition to the factual horse described by Bitzer at the beginning of the novel. Do you remember the quadruped? The circus and Pegasus embody the idea of hyperbole in its exaggerations and improbabilities, the incredible, the unbelievable, the fanciful. And to some degree, I think this remains the case for today. Um, I came across this um, rather attractive advertisement um, for a ringmaster or ringmistress. Um, I can give you the HTTP uh, address if anybody's interested. Um, and the advert reads, As Circus MC, you entertain and excite audiences by introducing and narrating each of the show's acts from the acrobats and aerialists to the clowns and jugglers, known for your hyperbole. 
you have a vocabulary that's littered with words like spectacular, amazing, astonishing, and sensational. That's the address, because the, <laughs> I think the, the advertisement is still live, so, you know, think about it. An escape from the factual. Now, the circus and hyperbole also delight in the improbabilities of scale, um, rather like that description of Gradgrind's head, where you go from the, a landscape to the bald patch. Um, the circus, and I would say particularly circus elephants, because they are just so huge. And when you witness them close up, there is something sort of unbelievably large um, and heavy and massive. Um, well, Dickens loved elephants, um, maybe for their, their exaggerated style, maybe for their gentleness, that something so huge could also be so gentle. And he often used them for hyperbolic effect, um, often exploiting simile at the same time, as in this description from Hard Times. So this is describing the mechanism of the piston, where the piston of the steam engine worked monotonously up and down like the head of an elephant in a state of melancholy madness. Where the piston of the steam engine worked monotonously up and down like the head of an elephant in a state of melancholy madness. Well, of course, it's the factory workers who work monotonously, and it's the factory workers whose lives are melancholic and maybe even verging on madness. But here it's used simply as a simile, but a very striking one, I think. Um, again, of course, he throws in other devices of rhetoric to make that work so well, um, not least the alliteration of the monotonous melancholy and madness. That repetition picks up on the repetition of factory work. Well, given Dickens' love of elephants and hyperbole, he would no doubt have been delighted by this photograph that I want to end with. It's a photograph um, of an elephant receiving um, a hyperbolic pedicure. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> For more information, please go to www gresham.ac.uk